You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence Community Church. And it's good to see everyone. Just want to thank you guys for making us a part of your week. We are glad that you are here. Um, And so Providence is a people formed around a single vision, and that's to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. Uh, And to that end, every single week we open up the word of God because we believe that it has everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, We long to do that. So we're going to open up the word together this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 10. We've been in a series called Life Together. We are continuing that series. We are discussing uh, the life of of a believer, the faith of a believer, and how that's lived out in the context of community. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, it is going to be up on the screen. We also have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those to follow along. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it, memorize it, enjoy it, and use it. Um, And then in those Bibles, we're going to be on page 979 or 920, depending on which one you grab. So it is a mystery, but you can turn there. Uh, And then if you are able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read it together. So once again, it's Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. So glad to see you all. Uh, Welcome to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say a a special thank you and welcome if it's your first time. We're really glad that you made us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here with us. We hope you enjoy yourself this morning. So uh, like Eric said, we're winding to the back end of the Life Together series, and we have two more sermons. I'm preaching this morning a part two of what Eric kicked off for us last week, and that's Ephesians chapter number six, verses 10 through 20. This this topic of, it's kind of an obscure topic now. It has never been an obscure topic in church history, but it's, it's rarely talked about as often in the church, and that is spiritual warfare. The idea that we're in a spiritual battle as Christians, and Paul kind of lays out for us not only that the battle is real, but how we should be engaging in the battle. And so uh, before we pray, I want to uh, recap a few things that Eric mentioned last week, because I think they're helpful to frame where we're going. So uh, last week, Eric, Eric made an important point. He said, whether we know it or not, and really le- whether we like it or not, all of us, uh, because of where we lived and the time in which we were born, we've been shaped and formed by materialism. And so that's one of the reasons why this topic can be very obscure to us and we can be averse to it, is that whether we are willing to accept that or not, it's just true that we have been formed by this ideology. Now, you might be asking, well, what is that ideology? Really, if you want to boil down materialism, because there's a lot of things you could say about it, materialism asserts that the only topics worthy of discussion, the only issues worthy of grappling with are issues that are physically observable with our five senses. You know, if you can't touch it, if you can't taste it, smell it, see it, or hear it, it's really not worth your time to engage with these topics. And here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't agree. So Christianity at its very 
foundation, at its very core, talks about these spiritual things that go outside of what we can touch, taste, smell, hear, taste, and how those things are not just of importance, but hold a primary importance and that you can't, here's what the Bible would say, you can't understand the physical unless you understand the spiritual and vice versa. That these things are so interconnected that it's impossible for us to really engage with them faithfully or honestly uh, apart from acknowledging that they both exist. And then Eric went on on the back end of that to say that as we address this, there's a ditch on either side of the road that we want to be, we want to do our best to avoid, right, in our Christian life. And that is on one hand that we can have a tendency as we recognize the spiritual realm is real, spiritual warfare is a real thing, to obsess over that, you know? And, and just, you know, everything's the devil, you know, everything, the devil's done everything, you know, you joked about it last week, like, spill your coffee in the morning, the devil's after me this morning, you know? Kids are unruly, the devil's gotten to us, you know, we gotta pray that, you know, holy water on the kids, you know, whatever it takes, because it's always the devil, the devil's attacking. This is negligent of, uh, any physical realities, right? And it also is negligent of some spiritual realities uh, that are very real in the Bible. So like, okay, you live in a fallen world. Maybe that's part of the reason that there's construction in 1960. Or, and that's the traffic. You know, it wasn't the devil. Like, the devil turned all the lights red. You know, and that's why my boss is after me. It's like, maybe not. You know, you were late a little bit because you live in a fallen world and coffee didn't do its thing for you this morning like it should have. Uh, and then also, of course, our flesh and sin, you know, those spiritual realities, like maybe there's things that you deal with, be- not because the devil made you do it, but because, you know, you're selfish and you wanted to, you know, do what you wanted to do. And then it's, you know, well, but it was the devil that made me do it. And then, of course, there's always the most likely scenario, which is that it's a evil cocktail of all of those things, right? Working together against you. Um, and that's true. So there's that one ditch, right? Be obsessive about it. Then there's the other ditch on the other side of the road, which is to ignore it and pretend as though those things are not real. The spiritual realm's not a thing. The, the idea of Satan and demons is just kind of an outmoded way of, of our own inner, it's an outmoded way of explaining our own inner life and thought process. And, you know, there's not really a, you know, a devil. And, and, and here's what I would say. A lot of that cognitive dissonance comes from two things. One is our culture that is just ridden with materialism. And secondarily, it's because many of us don't want to be identified with a group of people that we would consider anti-intellectual, right? It's like, you don't want to be seen as the person who's the only, the Christian with the shofar, you know, and that's you or the tambourine or, you know, the flags, you know, in the, in the church. Now, if you're like, listen, that is me. And please don't talk about me that way. I'm happy that you're here, and I'm, I'm actually really happy about the flags, okay? What I'm saying is that there's a tendency to say, oh, well, I'm, not that, I'm not that kind of Christian. I don't do that kind of thing. You know, ignoring a lot of the Bible that talks about these overwhelmingly true spiritual interactions, the spiritual things that happen that are unexplainable, and how they actually change the way in which we engage in the physical like, for instance, the fact that David got so, in, so into uh, worship at one point that he worshipped his clothes off, the Bible says. The Bible literally says that. And that his wife was so ashamed, she's like, never do that again. You know, if you're married, you know this. You've probably told your husband this. You know, at a wedding, you're like, whatever you do, don't dance again. And David's response to her was say, I'll get even more undignified than this, right, if, if it's before the Lord. But my point is, each of these is a ditch on either side of the road. And, and, the, and the Christianity answers this conundrum foundationally and most accurately because at the center of the Christian faith, we don't have images, we don't have icons, we don't have statues. We have not even prophets and teachers. We have Christ Jesus, the God-man. 100% human, 100% God in the flesh. And it's in the hypostatic union that, that God, that Jesus was never only God or only man, but he's always been the God man. That this hypostatic union, Jesus incarnating into human history, it's in Jesus that we understand the world is both physical and spiritual. That when we gather together in his name, that there's a, a meeting of heaven and earth kind of happening. It's why communion's so central to a gathering because when Jesus says that we ought to eat his flesh and drink his blood, there's something represented here that there's a union between us and God and that like Jacob's ladder, there's this union between heaven and earth that is Christ. And that it's impossible to understand the world around you unless you know there's a physical and there's a spiritual and these are interconnected and they are as interconnected as Jesus' divinity and his humanity. You are body and soul. Both of these are true. And you have to see them as both true and real. So here's how it might look on the ground. Depression and anxiety. You might say something like, 
Is my depression and anxiety a result of my physical and chemical deficiencies that can be solved through modern medicine? Or are they products of spiritual attacks schemed by the enemy to debilitate me and cause me to struggle incessantly to find joy in Christ? The Christian would say, yes. Yes. Your body and soul, are there potentially things happening that are medically true in your brain? Certainly. Is Satan after you, hates you, wants you to be depressed, not find joy in Christ? Certainly. And if we only say that one of these can potentially be true, then we're ignoring the realities of your body and your soul. Both of these are true at the same time. How about this one, marital struggles? Is my marital strife an issue with my childhood? My inability to cope with the hardships I experienced as a kid, my relationship with my dad, I need to find counselors, or... Are my marital strifes the result of spiritual attack, demonic forces that hate my marriage, hate me, and would love nothing more than for me to self-destruct and, and destroy my own family? The Christian would look at that and say, yes. Yes, you probably need to go to counseling, figure out your dad issues that we all have, and the, the devil hates you and would love to destroy your marriage. And he, he loves to work on the daddy issues because they're like low-hanging fruit for you. So, but he's after you anyway. You could get this, you know, you can get as much healing as you want from your counselor and love your dad that didn't treat you all that well. And guess what? Satan's still going to be there and find another way. He looks to find side doors, back doors, front doors, windows, or just burn the house down. He's really bad. Okay. But both of these things can be true. All right. So only Christians are well equipped to answer these kinds of questions because we see both. We see the physical, we see the spiritual, we engage with that. Now, what I want to say, and the reason I spent so much time on that is this morning, I'm talking about the spiritual realm. Okay, if you, t- if you don't understand that I, I'm talking about the spiritual realm this morning, then you might think that what I'm talking about is kooky. It's not kooky, it's very real. But I'm focused in on that because that's what the text is focused in on. And so what I wanna do is I wanna pray and I wanna ask the Holy Spirit to help us because I think that what we're doing here this morning is not only sacred, but I believe it's a cosmic war that's going on even as we sit, even as we hear, even as we read the scriptures. There's a battle that's raging on. And we want to pray that the Lord would help us to acknowledge that and see victory this morning, both in our minds, our hearts, our lives, our marriages, our relationships. And so if you will, pray with me and let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, um, in so little time, I, I have to cover so much. And so I just, I ask for your help. We come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus, because there is both power in his name and because he has saved us so mercifully. We ask you, King Jesus, would you extend your authority even now over like, a, like a, the wings of an eagle over their brood. I pray you would spread your authority over us and cover us from all of Satan's attacks, all of his schemes, all of his, all of his lies, all of his deceit. And this morning I ask that as we read your word, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears, let us hear, let us be shaped, let us be formed. Let us be challenged, but let us be encouraged. And may we walk out of here more fully equipped to engage in the battle that we all are in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we're talking about the armor of God. That's where I'm going to focus for the first half here. And, and I was very tempted as my youth pastor background to dress up. I I'm, I'm really was not tempted. I had to mention it though, because I've seen other pastors dress up and I was embarrassed for them. And... I am not going to dress up, but this text is, because it's trivialized, we miss that there's so much truth, power, importance in this text. We can't trivialize this by just picturing your pastor that, you know, dressed up like Brad Pitt from Troy, you know, and then started talking about the breastplate, you know, whatever it may be. I want to start with this. What is Satan's end game? If Satan and all of his undersecretary demons that are always after us, if there's a spiritual realm and that spiritual realm is he's after us, why is he after us? What's his end game? So a lot to be said here, but there's a very simple way of explaining Satan's aim towards us. I want to start with this. He doesn't actually care about us that much. We're really insignificant in the grand scheme. You are only insignificant in so much as God has branded you with his image, which makes you significant in Satan's battle because he hates God and wants to dishonor and defame God. You are caught up in this because you are God's image bearer. So his aim is to destroy you in so much as that dishonor and defames God because that's a primary way that Satan can dishonor and defame God and that is through derailing and destroying you. That's why the Bible says things like this. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Who? You. 
can't destroy God, the immutable God of the universe, but he can do that to you and me. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, to consume. Who is he trying to devour? Again, not God, you and me. The book of Job says that Satan comes up before God and says, God asks him, have you considered my servant Job who is righteous in his ways? And Satan responds, if you would but allow me to destroy him or to try to harm him or to take away, take away this hedge of protection so I can get to him. This is what Satan says. He will curse you to your face. That's very telling on the aim of Satan. He wants you to dishonor God, your father, and he wants you to do so willfully and boldly in the face of the one that created you. Deny him. Not because he cares about you, okay? You're not in some cosmic battle where he considers you even a difficult foe. It's because he hates God, okay? You have to understand this because then you'll understand how Satan could give you good things and make you feel good even though he's not actually after your good. How would, why would Satan do that? Because if he can get you to feel good, do good things, only in so much as he might derail you from honoring God, that's a win for him, okay? That's a win for him. It's not a loss. All right. So let's start, and I gotta roll through these kind of quickly to get to where we need to go. The first is the belt of truth. So Paul says, you need to put on the belt of truth. I'll start in verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. What is this? The truth of God covers our shame. A belt would have been what would tie, tie together the garment that you're wearing, right? So in the ancient realm, you'd have your garment and then you'd have your belt to tie to cover you. You see this in the book of Genesis that the moment that Adam and Eve realize they are naked, they are ashamed, and God gives them garments to cover them. A belt was to tie this garment together. They cover our nakedness, but they also protect us from the elements, the elements of what? A fallen world, okay? So you wear clothing, like children, for instance, we teach them to wear clothing, not because it's just innately within them, because I know you probably just like me, your kids, whenever they're younger, they run around with almost nothing on. And that's just normal to them, but we have to teach them that the clothing's necessary. It's, ne- it's necessary for two things, right? One of that is that you don't want them running around in their underwear whenever they're 12 in the H-E-B because it's shameful. You also don't want them running around outside, like in Houston heat, let's say, in their underwear because if they have pale skin like my own, that hurts over time. So it protects them from the elements. Truth, the truth for the Christian protects us both from shame, which comes from our sin, but it also protects us from the elements of a fallen world. There are few things that are as impactful on an army and derailing an army from their success than the weather itself. You know, basically everybody who's ever invaded Russia found this out, you know, like Napoleon, for instance, we're going to take Russia and, you know, they hit the tundra and then it's just miserable, right? Hitler did the same thing. It's like once you get, it just froze armies to death. I'm talking massive armies, trained armies, qualified armies. They had tanks. Tanks would get stuck in the snow. They have to abandon them. I mean, just the weather itself is a a real foe. And spiritually, what Paul is teaching us here is that when we put on the belt of truth, God protects us from just the world that is fallen, that is very, very dangerous spiritually. The world itself is wired in such a way that it'll beat you up. If you're a Christian, then you're probably like, yeah, I get that. If you're a baby Christian, you know, you've probably gone through that honeymoon phase where you're like, oh man, everything's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. I I love every KSBJ song. (laughs) You know, you guys all know what I'm talking about. When you first come to Christ, there's that phase where you're just like, we call it like being on fire for Jesus. See it in a lot of young people. And I always try to fan that into flame because I'm just like, let it go, baby. That's awesome. Because I know inevitably, and we all know for as long as you've been a Christian, you know that there comes the day where you used to look at your fellow volunteer and be like, why are they always complaining? And then you realize you become that person, you know? Somebody in the church, you're like, man, they're always kind of like stodgy. Like Jesus is alive, man, the tomb's empty. (laughs) And you give it time and you're that stodgy when it looks at that young Christian, you're like, oh yeah, just give it time, you know? Well, why is that? I think the answer for that is because just like we dress our children, okay, because they don't know how to dress themselves. I believe that God dresses the baby Christians in his armor for a season so that they might be protected from the one who really hates them. But then just like a good father, what he does is he slowly starts to let us go out there with our shoes on the opposite feet, with our shirt, you know, breastplates on our back. We get hit a couple times. Oh, you know, what happened? And then we realize, right? But God's teaching us to put, spiritual maturity looks like learning to put on the armor of God yourself every day. Okay, so without the truth, we are naked. We are exposed to the harsh spiritual elements of the world. And also, we lo- it loosens every part of the garments. The belt is what keeps it all together. We need the truth of God. Okay, number two, the breastplate of righteousness. So the Bible says, 
having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does the breastplate cover? It covers your heart, your vital organ, your heart. This is true both spiritually and physically, right? Many times if you've ever been hunting, then there's two places that you'll typically try to aim your shot. One of those is the heart because the heart's one of the fastest ways to end someone, right? Or to end an animal in particular. And so the Bible says this in Proverbs, I believe it's chapter four, verse 23. It says, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flows the wellspring of life. So Solomon knew that the heart spiritually is something that we ought to guard. And if we're ought to guard it, who are we guarding it from? Well, the enemy's after you. And I think there's two attacks that you will see from the enemy. And this is why Paul says the breastplate of righteousness is what protects us. Here's the first attack. The enemy, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, will start with this attack the moment that you fall short and sin. He'll say something like this. Look how your struggles against sin have decommissioned you from ever being able to share the gospel with anybody else. How dare you talk about the gospel? You sin all the time. You're not righteous, you're filthy. Don't tell your coworker about Jesus. What about your life? Don't talk to your friend about Jesus. Didn't you utter a curse word whenever they slammed on their brakes in front of you this morning? This is how it looks. Didn't you yell at your wife? How dare you talk to your coworker about marriage? Didn't you get angry at your kid and yell in the car? How dare you talk to somebody about parenting and Jesus and God being your father? This is his first line of attack. Okay, here's how the Christian responds to that. Martin Luther said it was something like this. When Satan would buffet me in this way, I would tell him, you only know half the truth. If you knew all that was true about me, you'd be saying so much more. And then he says, but my righteousness is hidden in Christ and where he is there I'll be also. The gospel tells you, You are saved, rescued, commissioned, and sent because Christ has imputed to you his righteousness on the basis of faith, not works. Every day you're counted righteous because why? Because Christ is righteous and you're in him. Okay, that's the starting line. So, but don't think that when you tell the enemy that, that then he stops. That is not how he operates. He may take a blow, and he may, but he'll come back again, just like he did with Jesus. If he can come to the son of God three times, tell me, how many times do you think he's coming to you? So he comes back, and here's his second line of attack. It looks something like this. You shouldn't worry so much about sin. I mean, if God forgives you like you're saying, you know he's going to forgive you again. He'll show you grace. Like, don't concern yourself with this holiness mess. You just told me you got a forgiving God. Just live your life. Ah. Now, this sounds convincing for a moment, and it was something that was happening in the early church too. Paul says that in Romans 6, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. See, Satan's line of attack was then, oh, if you serve a God of grace, then you shouldn't even worry about holiness. He wants you to take off the breastplate just long enough so he can stab the dagger in. And here's how he does it. Once he's convinced you it's not a big deal, the moment that you sin, he's there to say, I told you you were garbage. If you're Christian, you've experienced this. He tells you it's not a big deal, and then he turns right around and makes you feel lower than lower than low. You ever fallen into sin and felt like it wasn't a big deal? Of course not. He's right there as your accuser. The same guy that convinces you to do the wrong thing accuses you once you've done it. Take the breastplate off just long enough where I can get my dagger in. That's his ploy. And he's on a cycle with this thing. He's always looking for an opportunity. The the breastplate of righteousness is this. We trust that it's the righteousness of Christ that protects us and it's the righteousness of Christ that causes us to pursue holiness. Does that make sense? It's only through knowing that you're righteous in Christ that you have the motivation then to pursue him because you love him, not because you're trying to prove yourself. Okay. Number three, the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I always think of Forrest Gump here, Lieutenant Dan telling us we got to wear socks while we're in Vietnam, right? Cushion sole, OD green. That's what he said. And the reason for that was because whenever they marched so much, if their feet weren't, weren't dry, that they would rot and just, they would get terrible things with their feet. An army that loses its feet loses its ability to move, right? Christians, remember this. You are not an army fortifying in your churches, hoping that the Satan, doesn't, Satan doesn't come in. No, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Meaning that we are a marching army pushing back darkness and the gates of hell are retreating from us. the, The kingdom of darkness is retreating from light. And therefore we are marching with a message of peace from the king who has made peace for us. That's why it says that the shoes are shod with the gospel of peace, the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. Satan knows that the message that you and I have is a message that few would ever turn down. It is simultaneously that they are traitors, treasonous against the God that created them, deserving of wrath. 
and that that God has absorbed all that wrath for them and now welcomes them and has the message of peace with them if they would just but believe in his sacrifice. It's a message that everything could be really wrong and it has gone wrong, but Christ has made it right and he's forgiven you of your part that you've played in it. Could you imagine this? And so what does Satan want to do? He wants to keep you from actually being on the march. This is an attempt to sideline you, not being ready to march with the gospel itself. It's his counteroffensive, and I think one of the ways that he's very successful at this is to make you think that you're actually not marching at all, that somehow you're just kind of like building a holy huddle to hang out in. It's not the Bible. Okay, next, the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which by it you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So whereas the breastplate just protects your heart, the shield protects every part of your body. All the great warriors would have shields. To go back to old Brad Pitt and Troy and Achilles, right? He has the shield. All the best warriors have shields. And when they lose their shield, it's a big deal. It's why in all the movies, it's like a dramatic moment. It's like, da-da, they lose the shield. So the Bible says the shield is what? In all circumstances, you should have it. That's number one. And what does he describe it as? Faith. Faith. Every temptation that comes our way has to first pass through the test of whether we trust God or not fundamentally, because every offer from the enemy, every temptation, every enticement, it starts with whether you think of the garden, Adam and Eve, right? Do you trust what God has said to be true? This is why Satan says, did he really say? Then he makes you question whether it's true. And then he comes in with his own truth. God just wants to hold out on you. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree. This is the enticement. He first has to attack your faith. Do you trust God before he can offer his counter argument? That's why the shield of faith is the first thing. Sin's always coming at you irrationally, trying to convince you not to trust God. That's how it works. We'll believe lies like, hey, gratify your sinful desires, and now you'll have joy, you'll have lasting peace, all this stuff, and then you never do, right? Or, hey, maybe if I defame my brother, that'll make me look more attractive to others. If I make him look bad, it'll make me look good. It never works that way, though. But we believe that, and we believe it because first it has to go past the shield of faith. Do you trust God at his word? All right, the helmet of salvation the helmet of salvation. He says, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Guard our minds from debilitating blows. The central command post of the human body is your brain, right? Like if you lose brain activity, we know that you've lost your physical ability to do anything. This is what we would call someone who's brain dead. The Bible teaches that when we're saved by grace through faith, that our entire mind is changed. The transformation of our mind occurs. That's what the Bible says. The word repentance in Greek legitimately speaks to having a change of mind. Something happens here. The way you see the world, the way you think, completely changes. The Bible calls it like scales falling from your eyes. It's like you didn't know a thing was real and now all of a sudden it is real and that changes everything, right? So the helmet of salvation is a a means through which we guard the saving work of Jesus that has happened in our mind. This executive control center has been now given over to Christ. The seat that controls everything in our brain is now seated by Jesus and not ourself. So through Christ, this is what the Bible says, we put on the mind of Christ. We take thoughts captive into the captivity of who? Christ. Every decision for the Christian gets filtered through who? Christ. Daily life can't be seen the same as it was before because now we have Christ. Even stray thoughts, we're bringing them captive. Why? Because of Christ. And so Satan's attack is always the same. It's very simple. It's just to take your mind off of Christ. He simply wants to distract and distort the truth of Christ from ever being what primarily comes into your mind on a daily basis. Let me explain how that works. If he can get you to make decisions on, the, on this basis, on the basis of ease or comfort or approval or acceptance or vainglory or wealth or prestige or power, any one of those is fine with him. He really doesn't care. Whether your main thing is I want to make a lot of money or your main thing is I want to have a lot of friends, he's fine with either. If you're like, I want to be rich, I don't care about my friends, Awesome. I don't really care about being rich. I just want to have a lot of followers on Instagram. I want to be an influencer. Oh, good. I like that. He's like, do that. You f- That's why if you notice in our culture, this idea of the self following our own dreams is promoted so widely. It's because Satan loves that. Anything you want, as long as it doesn't include Jesus, go for it. Do it. Make it big. 
if he can get you to fret and obsess over your physical appearance, your online presence, your child's sports success, your own intellectual prowess, awesome. All the above or one, just pick one. What do you want? Or to get anxious, make decisions based on your bank account or your social status or your lack thereof. Maybe your marital status or your lack thereof. If you could just get anxious about that, he's like, yeah, 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 you should worry. You're getting older. Figure this out. Anything. Because the aim is always the same. Distract you from Jesus. Distract you from the things of God. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things that are above. He's trying to get you to see the spiritual and see there is Christ. And Satan just wants you to basically put your mind on anything else. Screwtape Letters, which is one of, I think, one of the most accessible and helpful books on the spiritual warfare that's going on daily with us. It's basically written by C.S. Lewis, and it's under this guise of uh, Screwtape being a, an uncle to an undersecretary demon named Wormwood. Screwtape is writing to him, giving him advice on how he can tempt his patient, which is now come to Christ, which everybody, all the alarm bells go off in hell. He's come to Christ, we got to get after him. And so Screwtape's giving him advice. How do you get at him? How do we get him so that we can basically bring him home? And Screwtape always refers to his father as the devil, and he refers to God as the enemy. And so he has this quote. It's the second one that I gave you. It's a little bit long, but this is what he says regarding the battle for the mind, and in particular on the battle for whether or not demons exist. He says this. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless... Like all young tempters, you're anxious. You're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. So he's telling the young Wormwood, you just want them to do something. You want your patient to be really wicked so you can come to your father. You know how that, that pleases him. He says, but do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from our enemy. That is key. That's all that matters, he says. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. See, we always think that the opposite of the light is the darkness. And C.S. Lewis is pointing something out here. He's not making a mistake. Away from God means into nothingness because you're going from being into non-being. You're going from who you truly are. And you're not, be, you're not be, that's why if you think about the demons, they're always depicted as something that's just like less than human. It's because they're going out into devolving into nothing, into the most grotesque life force you can have because they've moved away from God and into nothingness, into vanity. Listen to this last line. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Now, if you understand that, you understand just how intense the battle is that you and I are in. Satan doesn't come with Las Vegas flashing signs and say, come over here, sin this way. He comes and just says, make anything your God. You like sports, you can just make, make sports your God. You love your kids, make your kids into little gods. You love your hobbies, you love, you love food, Whew, become a foodie. Anything. Because why make murders if, you can, if cards can do the trick? Okay. Now, I've got to get to the second piece here because I think this is really the most important portion of all of the armor because it tells us, number one, he moves on to the only offensive weapon mentioned in the entire text, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And then he finishes that with a big push to pray. So number one, the sword being the word of God, I think frames us to understand that we're not just on defense, we're on offense. And number two, the prayer element here tells us how you put the armor on. If you're asking, how do I do this court? Prayer. When we pray, we put the armor on, right? And that all has to be framed by the word. So let's talk about this. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I want you to notice that in verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, to that end, meaning to the end of putting on the armor of God, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And also for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So there's a few points here. How do we wield the sword? The first is that we digest the word. We read the word. We must be people of the word, okay? The sword, the only thing that not only defends you but moves the kingdom forward comes through the word of God, which is truth. Many a Christian have wounded themselves and others by trying to wield the word they've never read. 
to wield the truths of God without ever reading the scripture. Number two, and this is key, we pray the word. Remember what Eric said last week, prayer is not an intercom to call your butler and say, I need that Sprite with one ice cube, please, you know? Like that's what we do with God. It's like, can I get a boyfriend? Preferably Christian, thank you. <laughs> it's sometimes how we operate. No, prayer is more like you're, being, you're, you're battening down the hatches, all the bombs are coming, you need reinforcement, you're bringing out that sat phone because you're out in the middle of nowhere and you call out, we need, re- God help, we need help, please help. One way to look at it is that prayer is like the air war, whereas preaching is like the ground war. Preaching the word of God is what moves forward, troops on the ground. But then whenever you hear feel all of the bombs coming your way, you're starting to, everything's coming in. You pray and say, God, bring in the airstrikes because we are totally done unless you show up. Okay. Now, what do I mean by praying the word? Okay. I don't mean that only by it that we pray scripture line by line. I mean that when we pray, we pray in such a way that calls upon God to fulfill the promises that he's given us. We also pray to God in a manner that's consistent with who he has told us he is. This honors God when we pray this way, because if we pray not according to the word, we pray to a God that we've made up in our head. That's not honoring to God. That's praying to an idol. Don't, we, if I went to my wife and said, I love you for your blonde hair and your beautiful brown eyes, That sounds great until you know that my wife is a brunette and she has bluish green eyes. It does not delight her, that communication. So when we pray, we pray the word because the word is true and we speak to God as who he is, the I am who I am. We speak to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we speak to him and call on him that on earth his will might be done as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus taught us that in the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might be asking, that sounds great, Court, but I don't know God's will. Trust me, I've been searching forever. The Bible says this, you know God's will because you have the word. Now, I'm not saying you know all the secrets of how your life's going to turn out. If you do, we'll trade face mics, you preach next week. Here's what I know that we know. We know God's desires and his will that he has laid out for us in the revelatory word. How do you know that you should pray for your non-believing friends? How do you know that? Because God has told us in 1 Timothy that God desires that all should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and therefore we ought to pray, seek, knock, ask, plead with God. Take away the scales of darkness. Take away what's, what's fogging their mind to trust you, Jesus. How do you know that God wants your marriage to be good? Is that his will? We know that's his will. He said, let no man set us under what I have put together. So God wants your, so you can pray for your marriage. How do you know that God you know, wants your friends to, to grow in the image and likeness of Jesus? Because he said that's what he wants. How about this one? Why do we pray in the name of Jesus, you know? That seems, is it just kind of like tradition? Or Here's what I want to say. You pray in the name of Jesus because the Bible tells us that we come to God in the name under which, by which under heaven no man can be saved but by this name. So when we come, for instance, the sons of Sceva come to cast out the demons and they come and they say, Listen, in the name of the Christ in which Paul preaches, get out of here, demons. And the demons respond and say, hey, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? The reason for this is not because they weren't getting it right with the name of Jesus. It's because they didn't understand why and then have a relationship with Jesus. The name of Jesus is powerful in the spiritual. If we prayed in the physical and I didn't say in Jesus' name, you might not see anything different. In the spiritual The name of Jesus is what has power because we can't come to the Father in our own name. You don't come before a king and say, he say, who are you? And you're like, I'm peasant Marley and I'm here to talk. Get the peasant out of here. No, I come in the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is my son. I come in the name of Jesus because he's already paved the way for me. I come in the name of Jesus because his blood has covered me. I come in the name of Jesus because he's conquered death, hell, the grave. I come in the name of Jesus because I'm adopted in his name. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because now there's something different happening spiritually. All of creation submits to that name. You know, fish swim in the nets when that name's around. It's like, go to your death. Okay. You know, that's how it goes. I could go on and on about this one, right? But this is what I mean when I say praying the word. And Christian, the level of importance here, I can't, it's hard for me to exaggerate how important this understanding is. Because if there's one thing I know for a fact Satan does more than he does any other thing, it's to make Christians prayerless. 
to make you not pray. He will do this at all costs. It is the most powerful thing that we have. It's the word of God in prayer. It's why the elders, the first elders, when the book of Acts, they said, listen, we want to feed the widows at the daily distribution, but we don't want to do it if we're going to have to give up prayer and the word to do so. Because we can feed all of the people who are hungry that we want to, but if we don't have the word and prayer, everyone will end up dying of starvation. You might think that's crazy. Why would he say that? Aren't physical needs important? Of course physical needs are important. Let me tell you something. Everything that happens in the physical is motivated by what's happening in the spiritual. People don't die of starvation out of nowhere. Satan wants people to die of starvation. He wants them so much more to hate God. Which is why he'll let you die fat as long as you don't love Jesus. Remind yourself that Satan fought Jesus in the wilderness. Our Savior was in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights of no food. Satan shows up and he's, now it's going to be a showdown. The most consequential spiritual attack that's ever happened in the history of man. Jesus, no food, in the desert, desolate place. Satan shows up, I have bread for you. Ooh, how wicked is that? How evil is this? It even says it's after he had ended his fast meaning that he wouldn't be breaking his fast to do so, but it, just to offer, to eat bread from the hand of Satan is the offer. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't respond any other way, but by the word of God. The word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan's not deterred, he comes back another way. By the end, Satan's quoting scripture to Jesus, don't ever kid yourself. He knows the Bible better than you. It's why it's so scary that none of us even know the Bible. He knows what, you, what you're about to say, and he'll convince you that you're lying. He'll convince you that you've misinterpreted it. All for what? Don't kid yourself. He doesn't love you. It's all because he wants you to defame Jesus. Now, this is why at Providence, we always say, hey, we want to go to the word. Why is that? Because we're, you know, hyper-religious Oh, the stodgy church. Let's sing more. Listen, I'm all about singing. But you, if you want me to know, you want to know why we put the scriptures underneath the slides whenever we're singing? Because if we just sing our own words, there isn't power there. It, Satan trembles at God's word. If I come and tell you my best advice, Satan loves it. He might even fund us. He's on board with that. Don't kid yourself. You know, you, you know what Satan loves to fund? Political think tanks. Because the word's not there. Fund that. Ideas from man, ideas from man, solutions from man. Oh, I love it. The moment you bring the word in, cut the funding, kill these people, send them to jail. He is done with that. And so when we stand up at Providence, we say, we want to preach the word. Why? Because he flees when he hears it. It's scorn to his soul when he hears it. Because every time the word of God is spoken, it's a reminder of his end. Because God's already spoken the end from the beginning. And when you talk about God's word, when you speak God's word as it truly is, he's reminded that he lost. And Satan is a creature of pride. He cannot bear scorn. Martin Luther said this. He cannot bear scorn, so Martin Luther was fraught with making fun of him. He says because he can't take that. Above all, he hates the idea of being made fun of. And the word of God is like a, it's mockery to him. So, how do you do spiritual war at your household? Listen to me, parents, you do spiritual war when you teach your kids the word. You teach your kids the Bible. You're doing spiritual battle. You ever wonder why it's tough to pray? It doesn't seem like it'd be that tough, right? Because it's not that tough to watch Netflix. Like, it's not that tough to even talk to people. Like, I'm a kind of a talker, so I like hanging out with people. So if I get the chance to talk to God, why is it so tough? Because Satan hates that. He loves my conversations about God as long as I don't talk to God. And his best option is that I would have conversations about God that are devoid of his word. <laughs> Just my ideas. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other day and I thought this about, who cares what you thought about God? I don't care what you've thought about God. What does the word say about God? Well, you know, it's just my experience. Who cares about your experience? Your experience means nothing to me. I love you as a person, but let me tell you something. If you're telling me about God, I need to know it's true. Because you're dealing with spiritual things here. It's no longer some frilly conversation like we're talking about Shakespeare. We're talking about God. So don't be ashamed of the word. Paul says, 
pray for me, brothers, that I might be courageous, that I might be bold. And I love how he says this because he's actually tipping his hand to us as I ought to speak. When you speak of God, speak of God boldly, knowing that it is true, because here's what I promise you, you will be met with opposition that's equally as bold. Many don't question why they make fun of you on social media. Many don't question why they scorn you. They just do so boldly because they've been told to. So Christians, you must stand boldly and say, no, God is God. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's true. There are fundamental realities about this world because we serve a creator. We stand boldly in that truth. I didn't say pridefully. I said boldly. No man can be prideful if he's kneeling before the throne of God. Okay. Now I want to close with this. This week, as I was preparing for this, and I know you, all you guys, you know, you probably saw this, whether a lot of it or a little of it, and it was, just, it was just glaring to me. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to mention it. What's going on in Afghanistan has really just shaken me. It's so sad to watch it. And as I was preparing, I'm like, you know what? To talk about almost anything in our culture right now without getting drug into politics is like trying to run from your car to your house when it's pouring down rain and not get wet, you know? But I want to make a comment that I think is completely apolitical, but it, it's just true. And that is, when you watch babies being thrown over razor fire fences, running from terror, when you read reports about pastors' daughters being stolen from their house at 14 years old to be put into slavery as, quote, wives of their new husbands, Christians and missionaries running and fleeing to the mountains, women hiding in their houses, If it's nothing else to you, it ought to be this, Christian. It's a repudiation that this world is only the material. It's a repudiation of the idea that you're just fighting flesh and blood. There's a spiritual battle that's happening that we've wrongly thought we could fight with just flesh and blood. Ideas, theology, and the soul matters. What we believe about God matters. See, we all think it could just be nations. If it's just nations that we attach to this kind of stuff, then it's easy to have wars. But what about this? Satan hates babies. That's why he loves this. I could tell you who's behind it. You're just not going to like the answer. Satan loves destroying women. Have you ever wondered why you see so much of this oppression against ladies and really just harming infertility like right now? A million Uyghur Muslims and particularly the women are being sterilized in a whole nation. Why the women? Because women represent image-bearing creation. They, they represent the continuation of children and Satan hates children. Do you know why? Because he cares about kids? No, it's because they are image-bearers of God and he hates God. The very first commandment is go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What does Satan want to do? Destroy that hates women, hates children, who doesn't want men to take their responsibility seriously, doesn't want men to be fathers. Do, I would rather men to go off into the army, get an AK and start shooting people up than be a father and have children and lead their No, he wants to destroy. And sadly, instead, the church looks and we think that it's all this is the political realm. And man, if we just could change these things, let me tell you what's really happening. It is a spiritual battle that we all have to see for what it is. I'm not saying they're not political realities. I'm no fool. I think all the political realities have to do with spiritual realities. And the Christian church has to wake up, particularly in the West. When I get you guys to stand to your feet in a minute, what's going to happen is the enemy's quickly going to work on your mind and say, and start distracting you with the myriad of things that you guys have going on. Things that you guys are, they're very real things with your kids. In the hopes that you wouldn't open your mouth and sing and worship God in truth. When you go to take communion, he's going to try to distract your mind on things that aren't your sin and repentance in your family, but on all the different things you're worrying about. You're thinking about the tags and the killing to get the kids in a minute here and how are we going to get into the car and which car are we going to drive and blah, blah, blah. Then there might be a prayer partner say, hey, go and pray. And you know what he's going to do there immediately? Don't do that. The lights are too high. What are people going to think if you walk up to the prayer partner? Look at their marriages on the rocks. You know what we ought to do? If run to pray. We should immediately run to pray. If there's an unction in your soul that you need prayer, then we should run. But the enemy says, oh, don't do that. It's going to be awkward. You don't know that person. You don't really even know them. 
What if you tell them your secrets? I mean, oh my gosh, your secrets are bad. I'm telling you this is constantly happening, and here's what I sadly know is true, is that in the end, even myself, we're so focused on the material that we'll just ignore it. We'll just think that's just me. No, Court, it's not the enemy. It's I'm hungry. And yeah, you probably are hungry, but why are you so obsessed with it right now? I'm trying to challenge us to wake up. There's a bigger, deeper reality, and the enemy wants to keep us from proclaiming the word and from praying the word, from preaching the gospel and praying that the gospel would move forward. He wants to keep us from those two things because those two things significantly matter. And it's my prayer that we'd wake up from that because here's the good news. Jesus has won. He's a victorious king. Jesus has won the war already. We're bringing a message of peace. We're bringing a message of hope. We're bringing a message of eternal victory. And we're bringing it to a dark and dying world. And he has promised to be with us. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I... I um. I know under the sound of my voice that there are ways in which the enemy has schemed to drive wedges in between married couples, to cause tension between brothers and sisters, to sow seeds of sinful behavior in each of our hearts, to lay down chains of bondage that keep us continually immobilized. So Holy Spirit, we ask now, Give us the courage to begin praying the word again. To begin calling out that you might break those chains of bondage, that you might uproot those seeds of sinfulness, that you might unify marriages again, my God. And above all, I pray for those under the sound of my voice that aren't sure if they really know or trust you, Jesus, that you would overcome the spiritual opposition because I know the enemy's trying with everything he's got to keep them from you. And so now we ask, would you help to open our eyes to the spiritual, not to fall into the ditch of over-realization, but God, not to under-appreciate the battle we're in. Jesus, we look to you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who's enlisted us. As we sing the truth and as we take communion, I pray for the freedom you've offered us to take hold. In Jesus' good name, amen.